0: 60 degrees, high high, 360 degrees, high high three hundred and sixty degrees, high high three hundred and six, three hundred
1: and six, three hundred and sixty degrees, high high.
2: Welcome to Full Circle on KPFA. Our cultural affairs radio magazine is produced, hosted, and engineered by apprentices of the First Voice Media Action Program. Tonight on Full Circle, we present a Thanksgiving commentary, or two, information about food justice, and some wonderful sounds from past Full Circle archive shows. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Up first, we hear from apprentice Teresa Adams, who shares Thanksgiving memories.
3: Dashing through the snow in a one horse open sleigh, or the
4: few Is it that time of year again already? I just had my field of barbecue. Yet as I stand at the entrance of the convenience store, I see not only Halloween costumes, but also Christmas wrapping paper. I can't tell you how annoyed I get when this happens, especially since the fall holiday campaign seems to come earlier each year. There are witches on broomsticks and masks, and this year, sitting right beside them is green and red wrapping paper, the ultimate symbol that the holidays are not just around the corner, but actually here. But as usual, one special day has not been given a place of honor on the store shelves. There's no image of turkeys or serving platters on display. If you push back a few items on the grocery shelves, you might come away with a can or two of pumpkin pie filling. And of course, we can look forward to Starbucks' special pumpkin macchiato to get you in the mood. But before I say another word about holidays and pumpkins, I should tell you I don't like pumpkin anything. But in my mind, an American Thanksgiving includes a pumpkin pie, unless it's substituted for sweet potato pie, as it is in my house. Maybe one of the reasons I feel sad when I realize, once again, Thanksgiving is getting the short end of the stick, is because when I think about this time, I always think about my dad, who passed away. It seems that he and America's reverence for Thanksgiving and our family values disappeared around the same time. Thanksgiving was his thing. When I was a girl, he would let me help him in the kitchen. He would use almost every pot for the meal. And he made the best mouth-watering light and fluffy golden brown rolls. While he made the dough, I would follow the instructions for his mac and cheese and stuffing. My mom would complain about the mess while my mouth watered at the idea of the meal we were preparing. After I moved away from home, I wouldn't eat anything on Thanksgiving Day until I reached the house on Vermont Avenue with the big square kitchen and the pots and pans in the sink and the pies on the counter alongside those homemade rolls. I can't be the only person who has this fondness for Thanksgiving and who feels it's been trampled on by trick-or-treaters and reindeer. In our minds, Thanksgiving is synonymous with Black Friday and football, which leads us to new television sets and back again to the mega-sales on Black Friday. How amazing it would be if it suddenly became cool to anticipate giving thanks the way we anticipate candy and snowflakes. We spend most of our time at work earning money to spend on those costumes and custom gift wrap things. Prepared foods are the most popular items in the store. We come home and take our places in front of laptops and television sets while the children tune out by plugging into the latest game. I love the feeling of preparing a meal for others to enjoy, then sitting around the table with family and friends. If I had to choose between getting up at 4 a.m. to stand in line for Black Friday deals, or one more day watching my dad make his rolls, you better believe I'd leave my hard-earned dough in my wallet and choose the baking dough and one more moment in the kitchen with him, my dad. It's a, family.
0: It's a family.
2: Oh, Teresa, that hit me right in the heartstrings. And next, an elder brings us a bittersweet look back at his internment.
3: Ed Kiyohara was a 21-year-old college student who lived with his family on an 80-acre farm in Sumner, Washington, three miles from the Puyallup Assembly Center. His family found the center divided into four areas when they arrived, and they were immediately forced to adjust to surviving in a small space after living on the farm. In Puyallup,
5: there were A area, B area, C area, and D area. I was in the B area. We uh, had a typical army barracks, shiplap and tar paper. I would say it was, uh, oh, 20 by 20 for a family. Of five, there is a bathroom, central bathroom, found each uh, block, we'll say, and and there's a central kitchen. There were no playgrounds or any area that you could play uh, any sports in, but uh, it was just crammed in there, and with hundreds of families in one area it was very difficult for everybody especially my mother who raised us in our farmhouse and, and then had to leave it had to leave, leave everything it was tough for
3: everybody nobody enjoyed it like every prison the internees were put to work making the camp run like a little city we had volunteer
5: uh, volunteered policemen in the in each area, firemen and uh, garbage collectors, etc. Everybody seemed to have a job, a non paying job. They told me that I was going to be a fireman. So at night, uh, we had to go to the kitchen and sit around there and make sure that nothing caught on fire. There was only about uh, four four of us on different shifts being a fireman. Some had to be policemen, some had to be garbage collectors. Every day there was a, a truck come by and pick up 55 gallon barrels full of garbage. They took it to Sumner, up on the hill above Sumner and they dumped it and uh, they had uh, three or four fellas on the flatbed
3: truck. It was at this point that Ed saw a possible opportunity to do the most noble thing a prisoner can do.
5: One day I I thought, gosh, they're going right by my hometown. Maybe I can sneak a ride and, and go into Sumner. So one day I asked the black truck driver, he hey, how about taking me to drop me off in Sumner and pick me up on the way back and, and so I can uh, visit some of my friends and get away from here. Took me a couple of days to talk him into it. I didn't pay him or a darn thing because I didn't have any money to pay him. So I talked to him and he finally agreed. He felt sorry for us. Being a black man, and being in camp, uh, he he knew the discriminations and he had a rough time himself. So he said, oh, well, I'll take a chance. So every now and then I would uh, get on the garbage truck, sit in the back with the garbage, and we'd get into Sumner Main Street. He'd slow down and I'd jump off and go to my friend's ice cream shop and have a sundae or banana split or something. That's where I was raised in that ice cream shop when I was a little. So they knew me and besides, uh, they thought I, I deserved an ice cream cone once in a while because uh, they hated to see us go. They knew the hardships we had to go through. So every now and then I would be stopped by the Sumner police chief and he'd he'd ask me not to please do not walk up and down the city streets because somebody might decide to turn you in. So I spent most of my time in the ice cream shop. Didn't have any money. So the owner said, you don't never need money. It's very hard for me to to tell you that story because there's a lot of kind people back in my hometown that I'll never forget. Well, it took about a half an hour for the truck to go up to Sumner and dump the garbage and come back. So I had to make sure that I was at that right corner so I could know, get on that truck and go back to Puyallup.
3: I had to be there. I didn't want the uh, driver to get in trouble. Ed also made sure his colleagues on the garbage truck got some ice cream. I
5: used to get them ice cream bars because it's kind of Funny them going through Sumner
3: with a cone in their hands. Although the authorities had no idea of what was going on, Ed's family soon realized what he was up to.
5: It was uh, not approved by my family, my brother and sisters, but they said I was going to get caught and be thrown in jail. Well, I'm in jail anyway, so it didn't matter to me.
3: Ed never was caught sneaking out of the assembly center, and moved on with his family to the Minidoka internment camp in Idaho. From there, he volunteered for the Army and went to Camp Shelby, Mississippi, where he joined the famous 442nd Regimental Combat Team. He earned a Purple Heart in Europe and returned to the Seattle area after the war. Ed and his wife Teru raised three sons and now enjoy the company of their six grandchildren. Ed remembers his illicit trips to Sumner fondly.
5: If anything, nobody knew why I was going on a garbage truck. They were wondering, how come I volunteered to go on a garbage truck? They were laughing at me being in, working in a garbage truck, but they didn't know that I was laughing at them and enjoying my, my little stay in Sumner. Actually, we had ice cream in, in camp but it tastes better when you do it illegally. I really enjoyed my ice cream cone. It was the best ice cream cone I ever ate for a long time. Yeah, it was wonderful for old man Corbin to give me an ice cream cone every time I, I snuck in there. No money, just thanks, I, I gave. It was a wonderful feeling.
3: For Full Circle, this is John Watanabe.
2: In this country, people have been put into internment camps. And in Europe, people have been put into death camps. These travesties and tragedies have been recounted many, many times, and yet some still want to go down that trail again. Let's take a music break. and true.
4: Right
1: and true.
2: is full circle at ninety four point one fm KPFA. That song was Haiku by the Ginny Maybe Nick Phillips Quartet. And now let's hear a vintage segment by Joy Moore about a neighborhood garden.
6: On a hot fall day last month I met Andre Singer-Thompson and Vicki Joe Sewell at Big Daddy's Complete Rejuvenating Garden in Emeryville. It's right next to a freeway overpass behind the Home Depot. The garden is named for Mr. Green, who for many years operated an auto detail shop and was a respected member of the community. So we're here at Big Daddy's complete rejuvenated community garden. I am here with Vicki Jo Sewell and Andre Singer Thompson. And they're in this spot right in the middle of the freeway access in Emeryville behind Home Depot, the most lovely oasis of green space, growing things, flowers, and art and it was phenomenal, and I passed this spot hundreds of times in my life, and I never took the time, I never noticed it until a friend of mine, Barbara Peterson, brought me here and gave me a tour, and I was blown away. And I said, oh my goodness, we have to record this. I began by asking Andre how she came to this garden and art project, and she talked about the environmental art and social justice class she teaches at Laney College and the international organization she belongs to called WEED.
7: Well, WEED is a separate organization, and that's an organization of over 200 international women who work with environmental and social justice issues. And I teach a class called Eco Art Matters at Laney College, which I started about six years ago. And basically, it's a combination of science, and art and bringing creative attention to urgent environmental and social justice issues. Vicki Jo was in my class and she let us use her studio for our show that year. Then the next semester she was the curator and after that She has let us come to work in the garden so that from January to June, the class works here and we work entirely with growing things and making art about food, about conservation of water, about plastic, and issues that relate to food.
6: Next, Vicki Jo Sewell, a sculptress and gardener who lives across the street from the garden, tells us why and how she began the garden you have such a beautiful garden here. Let's talk about how you got to Andrea's class and how
8: you started this garden. This garden was started eight years ago. It was an abandoned gas station that burnt down and the city of Emeryville didn't know what to do with it and they would always ask me what do I want to do with this lot? I'd say oh please just don't put a fast food restaurant here and one day Susan Steinman who is the founder of Weed started a small community garden on Peralta that actually was defunct because the landlord decided he didn't wanted the community garden in his space. Well, that inspired me to ask the city to put a community garden here. And as soon as I said it, they said, oh, sure, and gave me the money, and I built it. Wow. Emeryville is very pro community gardens. In fact, they're going to start another one for low income people on 48th Street. We took two weekends, we built the boxes and we planted everything, and we had the whole community here. We had a big barbecue and a party, and we built the community garden. The city of Emeryville put the fence around. Luckily for us, the Merritt College Eco Art class built us a, a cob shed, an earthwork shed with mud and that was because of Andre and the environmental art class and they come every spring and they activate our garden with beautiful art that makes people aware of what they can do to help the environment.
6: Now whose idea was it to mix art and gardening and when did you start the garden?
8: I started it in 2008. I'm a sculptor. And I make my living making public art. And my studio is across the street, and I've always been a gardener. In fact, Andre always says that I was probably a plant in my last life. (laughs) (laughs) So I have a really good green thumb. And so, uh, as you can see, I can make anything grow. I'm pretty good. So that's how I manage this garden. We have 20 boxes, and we have people from all over the neighborhood grow their own food. And we're so lucky here in Emeryville and in Berkeley and Oakland, we have four seasons. It never freezes here. So summer is not our best season. We grow pretty good tomatoes and zucchini and cucumbers and stuff, but winter is really our good season. And if you look right behind us, you can see all those winter crops. There's cabbages, There's Cauliflowers, broccoli, broccoli, bok choy, there's beets, and there's kale, brussels sprout, fava beans I've put in already. There's turnips, and rutabagers, and kohlrabi's, and onions, and potatoes in this. This bed that's about 10 uh, by 15 was uh, clay soil from a person's house in berkeley the city wouldn't let us use it for our cob house they wanted it to be pure so we made this soil into a flower bed and i just put in all the winter crops you can see how good they're doing this is going to grow all during the fall and i'll harvest it at christmas and then I'll put in another crop. And I'll put in peas and beans and more faba beans. And I'll put in cabbages again. But I'll put in spinach and mustard greens and collard greens and lettuces of all kinds. And you can have lettuces all year round. Beautiful, beautiful place. She started this garden
7: on her birthday. She invited all of her friends and we all planted potatoes. Lots of different kinds of potatoes with a beautiful little bronze caption for each potato. So everything she does is... Not not only a green thumb, but it's, it's artistic. As always,
8: art. always art. I call those kind of birthdays Tom Sawyer birthdays. It's <laughs> when you have your friends come over and help you do a chore. <laughs> <Yeah>.
6: <laughs> Beautiful ladies. Finally, they gave me a tour of the amazing environmental art installations found throughout the garden. So let's start with these plastic bottles right here.
7: This was done by my visiting uh, woman artist from Iran and one of my past students, Alida Line and Rahela. Zomorodinia, otherwise known as Minouche, (laughs) and Minouche has been my guest artist now for the third semester. She was working together with Alida Line, who has been working with plastic a lot. So they collected the plastic from the people taking it to the dumps over here, every day from the baskets, and they bought it from them. Then they washed them and cleaned them and sewed them together and made this very beautiful structure with the light coming through it. And this piece was inspired by this picture, which is a baby albatross, Laysan albatross, and that picture is a dead baby, because there's no room in its stomach for food. This is what was in its stomach right there. And there are 400,000 of those found dead, and Chris Jordan just did a study of those and did a photo essay of it. So that's part of the floating uh, garbage patch problem, uh, and they, so they put up all this information so people could read about plastic. So they use this beautiful sculpture to draw people in because it was beautiful, and then hits them over the head with the information about how we have to stop using plastic.
6: It's it's tragically beautiful. All right, what else do we have over here? Uh, let's stop at the toilet. I thought the toilet was very interesting.
7: And each one of these has a little statement about it. So this woman was trying to show the amount of uh, water that we use to flush every time can fill this tank. And that uh, if we get toilets that are not as conventional, the new toilets, old toilets use six gallons, and the new toilets can use a half a gallon to one gallon. So I personally changed three of my toilets and my washing machine at home. And normally in my house of five people, we used 45,000 gallons of water every two months. Now we use 11,000. And then when I did a gray water system, we went down to eight. So now we use 8,000 down from 45. Why isn't everybody doing this?
8: Powers are peace powers and they say peace in 12 languages Wow most gardens have peace sticks in them and people tie prayers and wishes onto them for peace mm-hmm. gardens are always about peace mm-hmm. about people living together in harmony you
6: have lovely places to sit down beautiful beds and flowers to look at it's just very lovely thank you ladies thank you so much if you'd like to visit the garden or find out more about it you can email Vicki Joe at Vicky Joe Sewell at Hotmail.com. That's V I C K I E J O S O W E L L at Hotmail.com. Or look them up on Facebook under the name Big Daddy's Complete Rejuvenating Community Garden. This has been Joy Moore, reporting for Full Circle.
2: Agapi Soul performing Your String to My Kite. This is Full Circle at 94.1 FM KPFA. Before the break, we heard from Joy Moore about a community garden. Given that one community garden can be a blessing, we now have a segment from apprentices Sylvia Torres and David de la Gran about an amazing nonprofit that amplifies food justice in the Bay Area.
9: Planting Justice is a grassroots organization with a mission to democratize access to affordable, nutritious food by empowering urban residents with the skills, resources, and knowledge they need to maximize food production, expand job opportunities, and ensure environmental sustainability in the Bay Area. Let's take a listen.
10: Today, we have representatives from Planting Justice. Can you guys introduce yourself? My name is Hale Zandi.
11: My name is Sky Buena Vista.
10: Can
12: you give us a little bit of background about yourself and how you got involved in the group? Yeah, so I'm one of the co founders of Planting Justice. We started this work back in 2009, and we have four programs that we currently are working towards. We have a landscaping service, we're building gardens at people's homes, anything from Planting fruit trees, building raised beds for annual vegetables, beehives, rainwater catchment systems, laundry to landscape graywater systems, a whole range of services for people to grow as much food as possible in their backyard. And then I work with Sky in the education program, and we have food justice and nutrition, culinary arts, and food justice programs at a couple high schools in Oakland. Fremont, McClyman's, Met West, West Oakland Middle School, as well as at San Quentin State Prison, and Camp Sweeney, the Alameda County Juvenile Justice Center.
10: Thank you.
11: Yeah, I'm Sky uh, of Buena Vista.
10: And Sky, can you tell us a little bit more about your background, how you got involved with Planting Justice, and what is your role?
11: Well, originally I met the people from Planting Justice in San Quentin. I was in prison uh, for an unarmed robbery uh, and I had a 33-year sentence and in the last three and a half years of the time I did, which was 21 years, Planting Justice came in, gave me skills in um, horticulture, taught me a little bit about science, uh, emotional intelligence skills, viable skills that I could use to work and uh, stay out of prison. You know, the recidivism rate. Uh, generally is between 60 and 70 percent for people getting out of prison. They typically return within, you know, 90 days, uh, sometimes longer. And that's not so for planting justice. Everyone that we work with has not gone back to prison. And uh, so that zero recidivism number is what really attracted me to being a part of the program in, in the first place. So upon my release... I had a job waiting for me. I wear several hats in the organization, and one of them is media internship. I was afforded an opportunity to come in here and speak up about what uh, Planting Justice does. And I'm also out there in the field planting trees, repotting smaller trees, working with people in the community doing canvassing and fundraising. Just this last weekend, uh, I was able to uh, meet the uh, mayor of Berkeley, and we talked about, you know, what Planting Justice is doing in Alameda County. I get around, do a lot of things.
12: And
10: when you talk about planting justice, can you give people a little bit of background,
12: people that are not familiar with the terms? Yeah. So we're really working at the intersections of these crises that we're facing, the climate crisis, the economic crisis, and the health crisis, which is really linked to food and the diet-related diseases that so many people suffer from because of the industrialized and globalized food system and the lack of access to affordable, nutritious food in our neighborhoods. And so at these intersections, we're really trying to create living wage, green jobs for people with barriers to employment. When
10: you talk about our communities, can you define a little bit more what you talk about our communities? Are you talking about people with low resources, low economic, socioeconomic, What exactly are your targeted communities?
12: When you look at the geography of the Bay Area, there's really a divide in terms of health and economic equity. It's a crisis that we're facing. And so people living in the flats, primarily people of color, low-income folks, um, people with disabilities who are facing multiple oppressions, they um, have less access to affordable, nutritious food. And compared this to people living in the hills and in more affluent neighborhoods in the Bay Area, it's really an indication of the inequalities that we're facing across the country. So can you tell me a little bit more about your other programs? Another one of our programs is our urban farm and training centers. We have a five-acre farm in El Sobrante where we're growing mostly fruit and nut trees like avocado, pomegranate, persimmon, a whole range of edible understory plants like berries and herbs. And then we have a two-acre site in East Oakland um, where we have a nursery with over 1,100 different varieties of fruit and nut trees. And people can make orders from all over the country through our website. And we ship. Um, plants all across the country. And it was previously Rolling River Nursery. Now it's in Sobrani Park on 105th Avenue, where we've been able to create jobs for folks who are living in the neighborhood to propagate um, these trees. And um, it's also the site where we're going to build an aquaponics system. And so aquaponics is using fish um, and their waste in a recirculating closed-loop system to grow greens like collards and lettuce and other herbs at a much higher rate than you can in the soil, especially in places that are toxic or cement. Yes, and can
10: you tell me a little bit more about your
12: high school program also? Sure. At Fremont High School, we've been there for the past six years, and we built a garden on campus with the students. They built the raised beds, they put the compost in, they planted They're harvesting what's coming out of the garden and making medicines and nutritious food and providing that to the community on campus, bringing it home to their families and learning these skills to really become leaders in the food justice movement. We've been at McClyman since 2012, and we have a very large garden. There 24 raised beds, and it's all over concrete. And so we're also growing fruit trees there as well. And our curriculum really integrates different social movements that are taking place all around the world, highlighting the work of folks like Cesar Chavez and Laura Suerta and their alliances with the Black Panther Party, or highlighting what's happening in Palestine as olive trees are getting bulldozed over so that our students can really connect what they're doing with their hands-on activities in the garden with the broader struggles that they're facing and the oppression that they're facing in the community and connect it to what's happening all around the world to really build those skills of community organizing and care for others One of the
10: biggest challenges that people that work on the land are facing is Monsanto and all the policies that they have been implementing throughout the world in India and how they are um, claiming control of certain seeds. Do you guys work with the communities to educate them around these issues?
12: What we're doing is really trying to demonstrate a different type of way that we can feed ourselves. And so rather than the corporate controlled, fossil fuel driven, globalized agriculture that's taking place where companies like Monsanto are profiting and trying to control the seeds, um, we are propagating a different way of living and organizing through our programs and projects And so whether it's in the education program at our schools, at the prisons, whether it's our canvas team that's doing grassroots organizing and community fundraising, or whether it's at the urban farm and training centers where we're really providing people with those skills and the job opportunities to transform the food system. It's really about building the movement that's going to replace companies like Monsanto and building up the skills and the resources to what we like to say, compost the empire. My
10: next question, you guys are a
12: nonprofit organization.
10: Are your trainings free or low cost? Or how do you do your
12: recruitment? Planting Justice is a nonprofit organization, and we do receive tax-deductible donations um, online or through our Canvas team, www.plantingjustice.org. We recognize, though, that there is a nonprofit industrial complex that's really inhibiting us from creating the social change that we want to see. And so at Planting Justice, we generate Uh, maybe 60 to 70 percent of our own income through our landscaping program, building gardens at people's homes, through our nursery program, selling plants across the country, and through our Canvas program, getting those donations from individual members on the streets. And we offer our services to our students at our high schools um, at no cost. Um, We bring all the materials and several educators who are from the community to um, lead those programs and facilitate the lesson plans each week and then we do also want to offer educational programming to the general public as well so whatever ideas people have they can reach out to us
10: so when you go to a community do you go by invitation or you identify the community as lacking some of those resources that you want to create like education community gardens how do you identify the community where you work
12: All of our partner organizations have reached out to us asking for resources around growing food, the skills and the knowledge to do so. We've generally had some processes where, you know, we make decisions as a group around do the missions align with what we're working towards? Do the communities, are they low income or experienced other hardship? It's important to empower the folks who are most directly impacted by food injustice.
10: I wanted to know more of the history of it. Who started the program and who created the vision? Because it's a beautiful vision and it's very becoming in terms of the times that we're going through right now. It's something that the more empowered the community is to provide its own food and grow their own garden and things like that, the better we're going to be.
12: When we started Planting Justice, Back in 2009, we really had this vision of these four programs that were all going to work together, kind of using permaculture design to design the organization, stacking functions. So it's this landscaping service for private residents, the education program, the grassroots canvas program, and these urban farm and training centers, all working together to support each other and to carry out the work. When I first started doing this work, I really came into it through my anti-war organizing. And... um, My family's from Iran, and when Bush was in office, it was quite a fearful time. I realized that the strategies that I was working towards weren't very effective, whether it was marching to end the war or asking Congress to end the war. And when you look at our food system, you can really see... How much fossil fuel goes into it, from the plastics to the fertilizers to transportation of food all around the world, such a waste of water as well. When I really break it down, why are we militarizing the Middle East? It is for this very precious natural resource, fossil fuel, that we should be keeping in the ground, but we're not. And so, even back all the way back to 1953 when the CIA did the military intervention of the democratically elected leader of Iran, you can see the way that fossil fuel and that control of that resource dominates the landscape. And so if we're able to create a more sustainable and localized food system that doesn't rely upon fossil fuel but relies upon the love and labor that honor the people growing the food, then we can move away from that those dirty wars and have a more sustainable future um, that will be better for the climate, it'll be better for workers, it'll be better for women, it'll be better for immigrants. And so I really see those issues as connected, these local sustainable food system intervening upon this militaristic culture that we have in this country.
11: Not to mention 40% of the food that's grown is thrown away, it's wasted. Right. And then you have other things like the the best buy dates on products that cause people to think it's no good anymore and they waste that food. Right. Or the water that we consume, the majority of it is consumed by, you know, packing plants, food companies, Coca-Cola, you know, places like this that we have nothing to do with. Our consumption of water is probably less than five percent, but we're paying the price for it. We're all suffering
10: for it in many ways yes that's right if you look at the packaging of some of the food that we eat and that we find in the supermarket sometimes you don't even know you cannot even know where that food is coming from morobia or you know places that you don't even know where they are they are but they are brought here and we pay the price for it correct when we can actually grow it here and the price will be more affordable
11: right and, you know, you have, you have 14.3% of the country suffering from food insecurity. It, it equates to 17 million households, not 17 million people, right? So there's 17 million households out there who are food insecure, which means, that, which means they have no access to nutritious food. You know, or if they do, it, they have to really go out of their way to get it. So uh, a lot of these uh, issues that aren't being addressed – Planting justice is is making a way for people locally to get that out of the way.
10: And now that the holidays are coming, is there any message that you want to give people out there when it comes to purchasing food? Or how can they be aware of where their food is coming from?
12: So as the holiday season is approaching, I'd really like to ask Americans to really take a look at the food system from start to finish, from production to processing, distribution, consumption, and waste, and identify all the different injustices that are across the food system, um, and really take a look at the history and the current affairs that are taking place, Standing with Standing Rock and the water protectors who are really putting their bodies on the line to protect water for millions of people um, near the Missouri River, and the farm workers in this state and all across the Pacific Northwest who are organizing for within their unions for their labor rights to get paid fairly, to not be exposed to chemical pesticides and fertilizers, to follow the lead of the Coalition for Immokalee Workers or Black Lives Matter and folks who are really fighting for the civil rights that are getting taken away every day. And so this holiday season, as a lot of America is really upset with what is taking place, how the veil of racism has been lifted. So being able to make those choices with your dollar, support the companies that are paying people fairly, that are growing food in an ecologically supportive way, and to um, cook food for each other and to really spend that time together um, across the table sharing love, because um, people really need it.
11: And and locally, I'd like to encourage everyone: if, if you can't get to us at Planting Justice, connect with somebody. That that could even be, say, uh, Sheila Burks or uh, Caroline Chow at the food bank, who educate people every day about nutrition. You know, you you don't have to uh, go to the food bank just because you need food you can network, bring food, you know, help people out, get some education, go online, you know, look up places you can put in some work, offer some service for people who are needy here, right? Because it's about community, it's about these little uh, self-help ideas that create fabric between us, right? So I'd say get involved.
10: Yeah, well, thank you very much because that's a very smart advice. Share a little bit of love and food is love. And we all need it, and we all need love. So during this season, we are looking ahead, and the times are going to be very difficult, very challenging for families. Sometimes the holidays can create a lot of stress on people. So just being building community, like you say, building bridges that will connect you to other people, that is a very, very good advice.
12: We're also offering some holiday gifts if people want to go to our website or message us on Facebook. We're harvesting herbs and creating bundles and sat- satchels of herbs from our garden like sage or rosemary or lavender or um, lemon verbena mm-hmm. to, to help with the, um, those medicines can help on your um, nervous system. And so being able to be close to your medicines this winter is going to be really important for people.
10: Well, thank you. And can you give us the information where
12: people can contact you? Great. So you can find us online at www.plantingjustice.org. You can connect with us on Facebook, um, search Planting Justice, and... If you'd like to give a monthly donation or a large year-end gift, you can do so on our website securely. And do you have opportunities for people who want to volunteer? We take volunteers out at our five-acre farm on Fridays. And our two-acre nursery site in East Oakland is open Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. And um, you can connect with us through our website to schedule a visit.
11: I'd also like to hear from anyone out there who feels like they're alone but may have, you know, some some idea or some need uh, that relates to what we're doing. So please contact me. I'm I'm sky at plantingjustice.org. Email me. Tell me about your idea. Maybe we can get together and uh, you know, build a bridge.
10: Well, thank you. And any last words that
11: you would like to say? I just want to thank everybody at Planting Justice for all the hard work they're doing from the men who were formerly incarcerated who are out there working hard in the neighborhoods trying to teach kids a better way to the people that put this together, thought it through and have made this a successful nonprofit where most nonprofits have folded since 2008 housing bubble, right? They they just weren't prepared. This nonprofit is definitely the premier uh, model in Alameda County at least.
10: Thank you for being here.
0: cookies and cream.
2: Food Song by the Bod Group. We started the show with a personal remembrance of Thanksgiving, and we'll close with Jimbo Simmons' commentary about Thanksgivings in which we can all share.
9: History wise, it's where we really got to look at the true meaning of Thanksgiving, and the people would really look at how it came into existence, uh, recognizing and celebrating the massacre of 700 Indian people. That's where our Thanksgiving come from. But I think if we were to take it a little bit further and we want to re educate our people, then we would want to be well, what is Thanksgiving? What does that mean to Native people, to indigenous peoples? Well, for me, I like to look at it not only as a day of of giving thanks, but for us as native people, every day is an opportunity to give thanks. Many of our people still do that today to greet a day, and I think uh, Thanksgiving is an opportunity for us to begin to start that thinking process again. Of uh, what it is it that we're really thankful for? Are we thankful for the food that's on our table? Are we thankful for our life? Are we thankful for our health? Are we thankful for our families? What does it really mean to us? And I think as indigenous peoples we can help people begin to re-understand and make a connection to the land and to the Mother Earth because I think for me Thanksgiving is bigger than what I just explained. It's also giving thanks for the creation, for all the things that gives us life here on this planet and today we can look around and see all these catastrophes going on, all of these changes in the climate and the weather, those are very significant points. Something's happening. Maybe it's because we're not giving things like we were giving in the beginning of time when we were giving what we would say the original instructions at our people. Somewhere along the way, people, all people, we begin to lose those instructions. And For native people, for indigenous peoples of this land, we still have those instructions, and that is something I think we need to begin to remember and reflect on what is uh, Thanksgiving. Well, Alcatraz, for example, started because of the Indian occupation that took place in 1969 and 1970. But it was also in solidarity of the occupation that took place of the Mayflower and the Plymouth Rock. So I I know I hope that uh, people will, people that have gone to Alcatraz, people that will participate going to Alcatraz will hopefully get that. To me, it's just really a reinforcing to know that this ceremony, which is a sunrise gathering, I remember 30 years ago we couldn't even get a hundred people there. Now we're getting 3,500 to 4,000 people there. That's saying something in terms of what our struggle is about and what we're trying to do here in the Bay Area, not only as a Native community, but as, as human beings. At first, we called it un-Thanksgiving Day, because what well, we have to be thankful for other than, you know, what, what we're looking at today in terms of the situation, Native people, Indigenous peoples? But then we also began to think, well, now is an opportunity to educate the non-Indian people. So we decided to call it an Indigenous Peoples Day of Thanksgiving. And so with this is what we're bringing in, our, our traditional people, our culture people, to give a whole new different concept and understanding of Thanksgiving not the uh, so-called American holiday generic type of holiday where you sit down and have turkey and sweet potatoes and actually to really sit down and have a, a healthy conversation with our family with one another and talk about uh, what are we really thankful for you know not just our jobs or you know being here but there's much more to this existence in this time of who we are in this place as Native people, as indigenous peoples. I think that's one of the main focuses that we can contribute to the educating and probably the mending of what they call the sacred hoop. It's beginning to get back to those kind of teachings and understandings. and To me that's what I would like to see happening on Thanksgiving and even after Thanksgiving and, and you know to revisit those kind of myths So I hope that in the years come, that we begin to really take a look at these holidays, let's bring back our own history, our history, not his story, but our history. So I would like to uh, thank people that are listening and people that are uh, a part of this awareness and consciousness to step forward and let's get the word out about the myth of uh, Thanksgiving.
2: To the end of tonight's show Big thanks to Ella And thank you to producers Teresa Adams, John Watanabe Joy Moore Silvia Torres And Jimbo Simmons Our executive producer is Miss M Our technical director is Frank Sterling Jr. Our production consultant is Joy Moore I've been your host Miss M Stay tuned for La Onda Bajita